Honky, what's that? That's tom-toms. Guess they got some sort of devil-devil dance up at Zambooner. Dancing to their holy diamond. But the scream. Well, wouldn't you scream if they Oh, were... them niggas, they ain't fit, they ain't. I've got to sleep down here. <laughs> Get your hand on your gun. There's somebody coming. I can't hear anything. No, but I can. Now I do. Here he comes. Help. Help. No, it's a woman. A white woman in nigger rig out. Yeah, Britain near beat. She's fainted. Here, give us the water bottle, Harry. It's thirst has got her. No, 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 just wet her lips. Those tom-toms are getting nearer, studded. I wonder what they're up to. How's the girl, mate? I don't know yet. Jiminy. What's up? Nothing ain't up. You hold your mug. All right, bucko. Only you sounded as if you'd found something. Well, I ain't. What she got in that little bag round her neck? In the early days of radio, that kind of thing was considered to be radio drama. Just as in the early days of television, it was thought that simply to photograph a stage play and make an audience imagine they were in the theatre would work. It was using the medium without being aware of its advantages. Just listen to this and you'll realise how far from those early days radio drama has come. What she got in that little bag round her neck? Some sort of native charm, I guess. Listen, they're drawing a circle round this hill. Gosh, so they are. We must break through. Yeah, and quick, too. But what about her? Oh, she's dead. Dead? Lucky for us, though, Harry. We couldn't have carried her. But we can't let them find her body, Studded. Help me hide her in the bush. Ah, there ain't time. No, no, don't touch her. Studded, you liar. She isn't dead. Well, then she's dying. It don't make no odds. We can save her. You'd leave her to be captured? She won't live like it, I tell you. You murder. Why, oh, you ain't a murderer. She'll be the murderer. Women ain't got no right coming around putting men in a hole like this. I'm off. Come on, Bill. If you try and quit this camp, I'll shoot you. Uh, shoot. shoot me, I will. Shoot and be damned. I'm off. Try and bolt, would you? Damn, Mr. What a swine. Walter. Pass up the water bottle, Bill. Harry Brogan was around in the early days of radio drama, possibly in the first play broadcast. Here he is to tell us something of those days. Well, I was in the first play that I'm certain of, which was called William, written by P.L. McCann. And as far as I can remember, the cast are all gone home, nor addressed them, such as Henry, J.J., Paddy, his brother, Joe Duffy, and uh, Paddy McCann himself. And I can remember poor Seamus Hughes, who was a great Irishman and a great genius and a lovable man. We used to, to put the old coats up round the window in Denmark Street to keep noises out. But to me, looking back to our great times, uh, tough, great times. And the enormous fee was 15 shillings a week. And uh, you couldn't change it, the cheque unless you were known to the postmaster or the August of Bun postmaster. <laughs> I'm not too good on the Gaelic. I never was. But I think there were great days. And then uh, when we played Shakespeare with Mary O'Hee and Elizabeth Young, it was very funny. I can remember the old script being dropped a certain famous man, I'm sure he's gone home, and we carried on, and to ad-lib Shakespeare was, I think, a bit of a, a bit of an ordeal. I mean, you can't very well do it. However, you could, my gag, aware of a, an ordinary play, can't, couldn't do it on radio. But uh, I think to great days, tough, but, but really great. The money wasn't great, but the people were great. And I think that's some of my memories. And well, well, you did everything live. Uh, oh. Therefore, if you made a mistake, it went out over the air. Was oh, that, yes. Was that very you, tense? Oh, yes. You you had to uh, try and fill in, you know, which was a, 
a strange thing, you know. She we used to bring when we went to Henry Street, we used to bring in bushes. I brought in laurel leaves to walk on the grounds of a fellow walking in the country, you know, bushes. And there were no records to made poor Pat Hayden. I believe he's still alive. I hope he is. Used to bring in bushes and stuff like that, like evergreen from Dunleary. And we had great fun, I mean, in the sense of spreading them down. And when we'd get the whole thing over, we left them there for somebody else to, <laughs> else to clean up. But I can also vividly remember in poor Clan Dillon's time going in and you'd walk in the little room and you'd see uh, a list of people who were booked for various things, you see. And you walk in and you see these fellas' names down. You'd have a look round, you see, and you'd see nobody there. And you'd rub his name out and you'd write your own. And then when you'd meet him, you'd say, I wonder would you have a, a date for me or something? And you'd say, wait, 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 wait. So you're down here. <laughs> your name is down. See, this, this was once the many things really great things and great people is there any production in particular that you remember as being very successful Harry Kennedy wrote a play on Father Damien the leper priest mm-hmm. and it was very warm weather and we brought in half dozen of stout and put them behind the curtains because it was a mortal sin to do anything like that then or to be seen so you put these, we put these bottles behind the curtain and I was playing the leper priest, Father Damien and I was dying a death scene in which I put a drop of water in my throat to get, to get these death rattles, do you see? And there was a chap called Lachlan McGlynn who used to write for the Evening Mail and he said it was one of the greatest pieces he had ever listened to, including a bishop, it was Reverend Dr McGeehan, Don Connor wrote to me and and the rector of Arte and these Christian brothers. But uh, anyway, when I said, had this famous line, what time is it now? It was coming near my death. And this brother was at me said, must be near noonday. And the blessed bottles of stout, the cogs popped. <laughs> And I said, oh, yes, it must be. I hear the cockatoos calling. That was Harry Brogan. It took quite a time for Radio Wern, and indeed other radio stations, to realise that radio drama was something quite different from the stage play. What exactly is radio drama? It's theatre, all right, but different from the public performance. It's something much more private, heard entirely in the head and mind. Radio drama, like all drama, tries to communicate. Its most powerful means are the means of all drama, the power of the sound of words. The earliest dramatists knew the power of words to provide the background scenery of place or character. But it took a long time for radio to learn this. Often an orchestra was in the studio, because all plays were done live without the help of recordings. This must have complicated things quite a lot, with limited space and very little rehearsal. But like the silent films, incredible that sound should use a silent film technique, the music helped the mood.
scenes and plays were often introduced like this. We are in the living room of the Murphy household. There is a three-piece suite of questionable age in the middle of the room. A door on the left leads to a kitchen, and a door on the right opens onto a hallway. This, of course, was ridiculous. We're not in anyone's living room. We're at home, listening to the radio on our own. This is no longer done in radio plays. The words contrive to tell us where we are, and suggest, often indirectly, the scene and the setting. But it was at least a beginning, and it wouldn't do to underrate the achievements or the difficulties of those early days of radio. I started the children's hour, and though I say it who shouldn't, it was an excellent children's hour. Uh, and one of the reasons was that um, I had extremely good people to help. The thing was new, you see, it was a new toy, and it was exciting and fresh, and everybody wanted to get in. And I had people like F.J. McCormick, Eileen Crow, Maureen Delaney, Sarah Allgood and people like that, willing and, and anxious to participate. It was a very good time indeed in that way. They, they didn't do it for money, they did it well for love. and for the, and, uh, it, it, was, it was great fun because um, when I joined the staff, I wasn't warned by anybody of the existence of copyright. I knew vaguely that copyright existed in the written word, but nobody had told me that it existed also in the spoken word. So I went ahead gaily and I broadcast everything that came to hand, and though I said we shouldn't, I had a very, very good children's hour indeed. We had no reader of plays, you see. We had only the, the director. And what usually happened with regard to plays was that somebody who was a producer or fancied himself or herself as a producer came along with the script and got a booking. Then it was left to the producer to engage the, star, the, the cast and to take complete responsibility for the programme. The fees paid were usually so low that if the producer paid his, his cast, he was out of pocket, so he usually assembled his cast from his friends and relations and pupils. And as I said, the play was rarely read in advance and certainly never rehearsed. But on one occasion, this, this lady, who was very well known in theatrical circles at the time, came along to the director with a script of a play. It was written in pencil in a couple of copybooks. And he read it and he said, oh, really, this is a damn fine play. You know, I'm going to put it on. So he gave the lady an engagement and the play duly was broadcast on a Sunday evening. I was announcing that evening and um, the play was on the air for about five minutes when the telephone rang and a rather cultured male voice said to me, are you the announcer on duty? I said, yes. And he said, what did you say the title of that play was? I said, so-and-so. And he said, who did you say the author was? I said, Madam, so-and-so. And he said, permit me to tell you that the title of that play happens to be Escape and that the author is John Galsworthy. That was Maura Nigrada. Little did anyone realise then that John Galsworthy's Foresight Saga would be such a success on television today. Another person very closely associated with the early days of radio drama was Gabriel Fallon. It's all so far away and long ago, or so it seems. The big room, for it was nothing more, in Great Denmark Street, with the fist-sized porcelain microphone lying in its bath of rubber and held there roughly at face level on a sturdy mahogany stand. This is to RN calling. The excitement of those evenings when we sat with headphones pressed tightly to our ears and twiddled with cat's whisker and crystal until from a distance which seemed like, like outer space, 
We heard the voice of Seamus Hughes, or Mairead Nagrada, or Kitty Roddy, or even that of the station's director, Seamus Clandillon. And then the even greater excitement of being asked to broadcast. Tiptoeing into the room, studio we called it now, having been led there almost in the manner of the blind by Mac the messenger and put into the professional charge of Seamus O'Marraith. Shh! Wait for the Cayley trio to steal away behind the curtain. Now, over towards the mic and wait for the announcement. And suddenly you realise you're on your, your own from now on. My concern, and the concern of many others, lay in the drama department. This was fed by companies or groups which elected to present at first one-act plays originally written for the stage, then special scripts as writers began to concentrate on the technique of writing for the microphone. Acting, too, was undergoing a change. And instead of giving a stage performance in the presence of a microphone, players were beginning to develop what came to be known as microphone technique. Change is inevitable, said Disraeli. In a progressive country, change is constant. This is certainly true of broadcasting. The metamorphosis of 2RN into Radio Telefiseron has had, for those of us who live on the fringe of it, a speedy and rather frightening perplexity. It was as if the canal boat we once knew had suddenly turned into some huge atomic battleship. The aesthetic growth has been no less marked. In the drama department alone, the one with which I was most familiar, there has been, long been, a repertory company of players familiar with every nuance of radio technique. On at least two occasions, the much-coveted Italia Prize has been won by scripts written by Irish authors and presented by this company. As for the effects department, well, that is a mysterious and truly magic world of its own. In those pioneering years, even though there was a lack of space and facilities, it seems that people were often allowed into the studios to watch plays being rehearsed or broadcast. One journalist wrote in his paper, Watching Mr Ian Priestley Mitchell at work in the broadcasting studios is a fascinating pastime. He used two studios, and his use of music is most effective. Writing for radio needs a different technique than writing for the stage. That was in 1933, and in the same year the Irish Independent noted, Radio drama is still in the same state it was in six or seven years ago. It is not growing as it should. But then, the studios are not good. There are no really convincing sound effects. And there's not a permanent producer. By 1936, Radio Wern realised that it needed new writers for radio drama. A competition was held for 30-minute radio plays, and they offered six prizes of five guineas and five prizes of three guineas. So many plays came in that after the competition, Radio Wern said they had enough material to last for a year. Uh, Frank Dermody, you produced many plays for the Abbey Theatre and then uh, broadcast them on the old Radio Wern in Henry Street. Could you give us some memories of the studio conditions, the actors and the type of plays you did in those days? 
I think you in those pictures I gave recently for this 50th anniversary, uh, there's a picture of me with my overcoat on, light raincoat, and my collar up in every one of these pictures. Well, that was due to a number of things. The primitive conditions of the studios, uh, and for effects, you see different people, maybe someone with a drum, and the window had to be quietly pulled down in order in a play like Plow of the Stars or Gunman to fire the shots out of the window and then quietly and noiselessly put it up again. In September 1936, there was a relay of a play from the Gate Theatre of the marvellous history of St Bernard, with Hilton Edwards and Michael McLearmore taking part. In those days, there were a number of direct relays from Dublin theatres of plays and pantomimes. It's a pity there was no recording of these relays. These plays, of course, were not radio drama. In a radio play, it's necessary to know who's speaking, since we can't see him. It took quite a time for writers to realise this. Here's an example of straightforward dialogue from a play for the stage. It's years since we've met. Years! How's life treated you, my dear? Oh, all right, I suppose. But I do miss the old days. This is always going on about the old days. I'm not. Mm. I never go on about them. You do. Now, listening to that at home, you wouldn't know who was speaking. One essential thing in radio plays was to be able to identify the characters. Voices could show it, but it helped if you knew the names of the characters. Like this. John and Mary. I say it's years since we've met. How's life treated you both? Uh, of course, you're still happily married. Oh, that's true, David, very true. But still, I miss the old days. Well, listen to Mary. Notice that. We use her name again to be sure the listener will know it. Listen to her. She's always going on about the old days. I'm not, John. I never go on about them. She does. David, you've not the least idea. Simply by getting the characters to call each other by their names made things easier for the listener. In the same way, they could tell where the action was happening, helped by a sound effect. Now we're in the garden, away from the house. I can talk honestly with you. But why should you bring me out here? I'm afraid in the house. I feel that the servants listen to every word, are behind doors, spying on me all the time. At once we know they're in the garden, because we've been told this. And the outdoor atmosphere is created by the bird song. But a producer needs more than just the sound effect. Listen to this sound. Some of you might have guessed what that sound was, but are you quite sure? Listen again. Now, once you hear these words, most of your doubts will disappear. Well, switch the thing on. Go on, don't be afraid it's only a vacuum cleaner. It won't bite you. This little switch here? Yes. That is a very simple idea of what is needed in a radio play. Of course, much more is needed. 
But on the other hand, so much was offered. Few authors realised at first the tremendous freedom a radio play gives. Scenes can change within seconds. One minute a man can be in America, and a second or two later in China. A woman can be a little girl, and within seconds she can be an old grandmother remembering her childhood. The radio writer has as free a charter as the wind. He is confined neither by time nor place, and can move backwards or forwards, east or west, at will. This freedom, once discovered, was often overused, especially in terms of the sound effects. And the next day, people might talk like this about the play they'd heard the night before. Wasn't the play on the wireless great last night? Did you hear it? Did I hear it? Did I hear it? It was only magnificent. The way they came in and out of the doors, and the way they had to break down the door, and then when they went up in the aeroplane, you'd swear you were there beside them both. things were changing. Irish writers, particularly the poets, realised that radio was very much a medium suited to their work. In 1942, Austin Clarke's As the Crow Flies, a lyric play for the air, was broadcast on the 6th of February by the Dublin Verse Speaking Society, under the direction of the author. Here's a fragment of the play. Archangels, pray for me tonight that I may sleep like Manus on this pillow of rock. Let me not dream of evils that afflict the young, and by your intercession save me from the dreadful voice beneath the waters. The author gave these directions in a script. The storm rages more shrilly through space now, and far below is heard the thunder of the waterfall. Then, as now, it was hard to please the public, and in 1943, many letters appeared in the newspapers protesting against the broadcasting of the Playboy of the Western World by Singh on Passion Sunday night. Sir, at 9pm on Passion Sunday, the self-respect of Catholic Ireland was wantonly assailed. On that night, the Abbey Theatre players broadcast a production called The Playboy of the Western World, I find it hard to believe that Radio Erin is subsidised by the government. Signed, Rip Van Winkle. 
Sir, remember well over 30 years ago the storm of protest against the playboy of the Western world. I was surprised to see it build on Radio Warren programmes for Passion Sunday. Thinking it must be a revision of the original, I listened attentively and painfully, and in defiance of repeated calls to switch off from beginning to end, see if I could discover any redeeming feature. But failed completely. Thirty-odd years ago, we tried to prevent the contamination of a few hundred theatre goers. Today, we broadcast the poisonous drug to millions of listeners. And now, a simpler protest. The playboy of the Western world appears to be centred on the barony of Eris. The people of Eris are hard-working, industrious people, and they resent the slur. It was amazing how many restrictions there were on broadcasting. When the Second World War ended, there was this announcement in the Irish press, dated the 30th of September... 1946. A play, North Atlantic Testament, by Father Mulvey, a US chaplain, will be broadcast. It will be the first war story broadcast from the station. There was no doubt that the lack of a permanent group of actors and producer stood in the way of radio drama. The years 1947-48 could be marked as a turning point in Radio Earn's development. The orchestra was brought up to full strength. A mobile recording unit was formed, and most important for the future of radio drama, the Radio Earn players were formed. Here's Ribordo Farrakhan, who was responsible for the formation of this permanent repertory company of the air. Let me begin with a quotation, and one of many possible quotations about the rep, from 40 years of Irish broadcasting by the late Morris Gorham, director of broadcasting from 1953 to 1960. He says, Most important for the general standard of the programmes and the working of the station, as Seamus O'Brainon put it, perhaps the greatest boon of all, so far as concerns day-to-day broadcasting, was the formation of a standing repertory company, the Radio Erin Players, 24 strong. Including both men and women, both Irish and English speakers, they provided Radio Erin with a body of full-time professionals who gave all their energies to broadcasting. Members of the rep were always available, not only for plays, but for features, readings and many other programmes. And with them were appointed a full-time producer, Michal O'Hay, and an assistant producer, Seamus Branagh. All that was said in that book about the rep was well merited. And it is good that these things were said, so that the rep gets its due in print. There is, in 40 years of Irish broadcasting, one short footnote which will suggest the answer to the pretty attentive reader. It says, The idea of a full-time radio repertory company had already been put forward by the Board of Farrakhan in a long and detailed memorandum to the director in January 1943. Yes, a long and detailed memorandum. But no details in that memorandum. And no plain statement in the text of this official RTE-commissioned book that this greatest boon of all, so far as concerns day-to-day broadcasting, the rep, was founded by me. And as you listen, I have before me that long and detailed memorandum which is mentioned in that footnote. It is some 7,000 words long, and I wrote it in my Christmas holidays, 1942, submitted it to the then Director of Broadcasting, Seamus O'Brien, in January 1943, received his comment, that's the solution, at once, and heard nothing from the civil service for two years, and had to wait another two years for the establishment of the rep in 1947. The memorandum of 1942-43 
is very briefly a complete, closely planned and closely argued case for the establishment in Irish radio of a permanent, full-time company of actors, actresses, producers and one effects man who would give us professional radio broadcasting as their first charge and release us from the chaos of constantly changing casts of actors already tired from other acting on the stage or from non-acting work in Guinnesses, the Dublin or Cork corporations or whatever. There was not in 1947, nor is there in 1976, a full-time, 52 weeks a year rep with paid sick leave, paid annual leave and possible or probable pension rights outside the Abbey players and the Radio Ellen players. My time is up. So just remember these things. I dreamed it up, I planned it, I founded it, I named it. I prevented well-meaning men, my superiors, from disbanding it or breaking it. And one last thing. As the only begetter of the Radio Ern players, I secured formal agreement from our Department of Finance nearly 30 years ago to recruit to the rep married women within the civil service because, I said, they can play married women's parts easily. Sorry, another last thing. The name is Radio Aaron Players, the initials of which title spell rep. That's why I chose it. Now with a permanent group of actors and producers, the pattern of radio drama began to change. Plays were well rehearsed, actors learned the different technique of radio acting. And this also influenced writers who wrote works with particular actors or actresses in mind. A very important work was performed early in 1948. It was a satire by John McDonough called Attempted Murder or The Death of the Stage Irishman, a send-up of ourselves. Make room for me, for tis I have kissed the blarney stone. Fate tis myself and the boys and girls astray. All means galore, sure with me they want to be alone, so that I may kiss their cares away. The boy is what the girls they do be calling me. Rot of the boy as I stroll down the old boreen. All the girls take great delight in me. All the boys they dread the sight of me. When I go trailing me coat and wearing all the green. It was the sign of the changing pattern of life in Ireland too. We could afford to laugh at ourselves. Around this time, 1948 to be precise, RAI, the Italian radio service, started an international competition known as the Pre-Italia. It was concerned with raising the artistic level of radio works, acting, script, production, as well, of course, being concerned with musical compositions. But here we need only think of the radio drama. One of the earliest pre-Italia winners was Dylan Thomas's Under Milkwood. Too late, cock. Too late. But the town's half over with its morning. 
The mornings busy as bees. There's the clip-clop of horses on the sun-honeyed cobbles of the humming streets. Hammering of horseshoes, gobble, quack and cackle. Tom-tit-twitter from the bird-ounce boughs, braying on donkey down. Bread is baking, pigs are grunting, chop goes the butcher, milk churns, bell, tills ring, sheep cough, dog shout, saws sing. Oh, the spring whinny and morning move from the clogged dancing farms. The gulls gab and rabble on the boat bobbing river and sea. And the cockles bubbling in the sand, scamper of sunderlings, curlew cry, crow caw, pigeon coo, clock strike, bull bellow. And the ragged gabble of the bear garden school as the women scratch and babble in Mrs. Organ Morgan's general shop where everything is sold. Custard, buckets, hen. Rat trap, shrimp net, sugar, stamps, confetti, paraffin, hatchets, whistles. Mrs. Ogmore Pritchard. La di da. Got a man in Bilth Wells? And he got a little telescope to look at birds. Willie Nilly said. Remember her first husband? He didn't need a telescope. He looked at them undressing through the keyhole. And he used to shout tally ho. But Mr. Ogmore was a proper gentleman. Even though he hanged his collie. Seen Mrs. Butcher Bynan? She said Butcher Bynan put dogs in them inside. Go on, he's pulling her leg. Now, won't you dare tell her that, there's a dear. Or she'll think he's trying to pull it off and eat it. There's a nasty lot live here when you come to think of it. Look at that no-good boy, or now. Too lazy to wipe his snout. And going out fishing every day. And all he ever brought back was a Mrs. Samuels. Been in the water a week. And look at Ocky Milkman's wife that nobody's ever seen. It was the perfect radio work. All the creative resources of the medium were deployed to bring a Welsh village to life. But of all these resources, music, sound effects and all the rest of it, words still remain the best means of exciting the imagination. In Dr Faustus by Christopher Marlowe, you all know the speech, Is this the face that launched a thousand ships? On stage we see Faustus and we hear his words, but we also see Helen of Troy, who, no matter how cleverly the production is done, must be played by an actress. She's really a vision, yet on stage she must be a solid body. On radio, Helen is not a woman. She's no longer in time and space. She's the ideal woman for every man, and she exists only in the mind of the listener. And there she is shaped by the words to every heart's desire. this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. Our lips suck forth my soul. See where it flies. Come, Helen, come. Give me my soul again. Here will I dwell, for heaven is in these lips. And all is dross that is not Helena. I will be Paris, and for love of thee, instead of Troy, shall Wittenberg be sacked. And I will combat with weak Menelaus, and wear thy colours on my plumed crest. Yea, I will wound Achilles in the heel, and then return to Helen for a kiss. Oh, thou art fairer than the evening's air clad in the beauty of a thousand stars. Brighter art thou than flaming Jupiter when he appeared to hapless Semele. More lovely than the monarch of the sky in wanton Arethusa's azure arms. And none but thou shalt be my paramour. That was Hilton Edwards who appeared in a radio production of Dr Faustus. 
The 1950s was a good time for radio drama in Ireland. The rep was steadily establishing itself with listeners. People talked of radio actors the way today they talk of television personalities. But in the 50s, possibly, our most important radio dramatist had his works performed. This was Podrig Fallon. And one radio man who encouraged him was Mihal O'Hay. Why do you think Podrig Fallon chose the radio rather than the stage for the great bulk of his writing? He began to write um, seriously for radio, I think, uh, in the middle 40s. And at that particular time um, in England, and indeed in America, a great number of poets uh, um, began to write for radio. Uh, probably what the main stimulus in Europe was the founding of the Italia Prize in 1948, which was to um, uh, develop the radio uh, uh, as an imaginative and as a creative medium. Uh, and uh, I think they were very successful in that. And at that particular time, the poet had lost uh, his place, I think, in, in, in the theatre. Mm. The, although a great deal had been written about a Nellyish revival and uh, later about a Christopher mm. Fry revival of verse and the theatre. I, I think that that's uh, uh, often more um, academic than, um, than theatre criticism. Quite. They, well, they, they, they disappeared does very it, quickly. Does it follow from that, in fact, that you regard radio drama as more poetic, essentially more poetic than stage drama? I would say yes. That 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 that, that remember that... Uh, that, that apart from Shakespeare, that uh, the, the, the ever since the, the end of the German Romantic movement, mm. uh, the verse play has not really done well mm. on the stage in any country. Right. Even Yeats, uh, at his most experimental, didn't break very far away from the from the the proscenium arch or, or, or mm. the picture stage. You remember yes. he went back and he. He transplanted from Japan this this idea of a, a no play and and uh, um, but still um, it's uh, very he, visual, isn't very it? Very visual, yes, very visual. Whereas Fallon noticed, I think, and uh, I think, in the, and, and I'm no Celtic scholar, but I, I know that most of these texts are in their originals a mixture of verse mm-hmm. and prose, mm-hmm. and he also knew that in a country like this where there is a long oral tradition mm. and uh, um, um, a very broken and intermittent uh, uh, written tradition mm. as, as you know with many mm. gaps in, uh, in dramatic material he saw that uh, the, the storytellers and, and, and the Shanakis if you like who passed on this uh, um, um, corpus of myth and legend that they uh, if you like were um, they didn't depend on visual aids. Right. They depended on the dramatic telling. Mm-hmm. And and I remember well uh, knowing that I felt that he was on the right lines in Diarmuid and Grania because I remember instead of opening it and in a conventional way with a lot of uh, uh, trying to set the scene in Tara or something, I remember mm-hmm. it started, I have a story. Yeah. And my story opens with the laughter of a girl. It was just the very same as if uh, um, uh, an, an old storyteller. Yes, uh, was um, uh, settling in. Yes, to tell it, and and uh, of course, uh, his imagery uh, uh, was uh, very good, 
um, uh, he had um, a wonderful sense um, then uh, of um, of um, uh, how to create a myth and, and how to uh, and to make it relevant uh, to uh, um, to um, an audience who, who, who mightn't be concerned very much with the symbolism, but at the same time were, were affected by it. I, I also feel that. Um, Looking back, uh, that possibly, and uh, ever since Standish O'Grady wrote or made uh, available some of these stories in his bardic mm. history, that of all the dramatic treatments, and I say people of uh, great distinction mm. have tried it, that probably, uh, in, uh, certainly in the case of Dermot uh, and Gráinne and of the medieval satire, um, the vision of McConnell. Yes. Um, a satire, if you like, on the on the clergy, that that these must be counted as the most successful dramatizations of um, Irish uh, saga material. One play of his, Two Men with a Face, or Mister Janus, was perfect radio. It did something that couldn't be done as effectively in any other medium than radio. One man playing two parts, a sort of love hate relationship, a worker and boss. And although there were different characters, they were each really the one character. Perhaps the best way to explain this is to let you hear some of the play. Are you waiting for that store man again? Uh, he's coming in the gate, sir. One minute past nine. Can you never manage to catch the clock, Cohn? I'm only one minute to nine, Mr. Keane, and me watch was right last night by the station clock. Open that door at once. These men should be working at nine, doors should be open and everything on the move at the hour appointed. I have told you before, Corn, I will not tell you again. The doors are open and it's now but nine o'clock, Mr. Keane. And my watch is right, as I have told you. You talk too much, Corn. If you worked as hard as your tongue works, I have no complaint about you. Look at you, this sleep still in your eyes and the stupor of it in your walk. You take your sleep, Corn, like another to drink. Mind yourself, I warn you. Mind yourself. There's no room here for the sluggard, for the liabed. Mind yourself. The two voices there were in fact played by one actor, Thomas Studley. Christopher Flynn, as a dramatist who has written extensively for stage and radio, what advantages did you find in sound radio? Well, initially, uh, sound radio provides a market, and that's the main thing, an audience for the dramatist, and... Uh, a thing that is very necessary for the playwright, I think, uh, training in technique and in control and discipline. Cyril Connolly said that one of our great faults was that we're too eloquent, the Irish, that is. So uh, radio drama provides this um, training in technique. Were you aware at any time of two different audiences when you wrote a play in Irish or a play in English? Uh, no, I can't say that I was. To me, the Irish people are the Irish people. The audience is the audience. Uh, I was born ambiguous, if you like. And a strange thing about this is that, of course, the audience who know Irish also know English, though vice versa is not quite true. Which listener, by and large, the Irish listener or the English-speaking listener, did you think they more sophisticated? Well, I can't be accused of bias if I say that I always felt, both for radio drama and for all kinds of writing in this country, that the Irish audience, Irish-speaking audience, is... Uh, perhaps slightly the more sophisticated. Uh, the explanation for this is, and by the way, I wasn't born in the Gaeltacht. I was born in Limerick City and grew up in an Irish atmosphere, but not Irish-speaking. 
the reason is, I think, that all the people who take an interest in Irish literature and Irish drama are very, very much aware of the matter. It's not just a thing that's thrown at them as to the general public, like fish and chips. Do you think that radio drama over the years has helped the Irish language in any way? I would say that Radio Erin in general, and I hope I won't be accused of plamos, and particularly radio drama, has been one of the great uh, factors in helping the Irish language towards whatever revival it has made. Der Mingweilige nach Federe Heme, Gorchaurig Radio Erin, Agus Gaharaha and Dramwechter and Radio, Le Havjochen Nagweilige, Agus La Forle Hanu Nagweilige, Is Queenlam Henegus Merskal Eliminach, Vehegestachle Radio Erin, Agus Lishna Dramwe, a Radio Erin. Chudichishingumurium, <laughs> Agus fi dyr sy'n ar ffael ach knapa yn radio y fru. Agus ni ffeder y hyn a gan o'r ysgor cydig sy'n sy'n gymwyr leis yn gweilige. Agus ta sŵl ym gyllian ffordde. Is mŵr y trwy'n acwyl ele heid er yn telefys ffresyn ach nil mwleim. Gwrymila Mahagad, Christor Oflein. The 1950s was a very fruitful time for radio drama. Brendan Behan's early plays were written for radio and his first big success in theatre was later broadcast from Radio Wern in a special radio production. Brendan Behan himself sang in the first production of this play for Radio Wern. And the play, despite its rich humour, was recognised universally as a deeply serious work. Here he is. It's Silvertop. I remember him being half carried into the circle the night he was sentenced to death. He has a right spring in his step this morning, then. Oh, he's not looking all that happy. Still, I suppose he hasn't got over the shock yet. Stand by the door with your name on it. Later on, when you've seen the doctor, these fellows will show you how to lay out your kit. Stand there now till the doctor is ready to see you. Took everything from me. Food, books, a drop of whiskey I had, even the newspapers, and stripped me and put me into this convict rig. Even a supper I couldn't eat last night. There was rashes and eggs and that. I got up an appetite after I heard the news and said, I'll eat it now. And they said it was too late. I was on convict diet. It took me cigarettes. Have any of you a cigarette? That's a hot one. Look, uh, it's it's not like being on remand or in the condemned when you're here. You see, we're convicted over here. We don't get any snout. Only a jog and you'd scrounge out the remands or pick off the exercise yard after a man like yourself that would be allowed them for, uh, for special reasons. Not that we picked up much after you. I didn't smoke much in the open air. Only at night time in the cell with the two warders. What did you do with the jog ends? With the butts? Oh, I suppose I threw them in the fire. I didn't know. You're a liar, my friend. You did know. How was it the other poor devil that got no reprieve and is to be tapping them on? How was it he was always able to leave a trail of butts behind him when he went off exercise? 
Radio drama was becoming part of the pattern of Sunday night listening. People who'd never in their lives been in a theatre got a chance to hear all the great plays. The selection of plays was very wide, sometimes a classic, other times a kitchen comedy. And there were plays dealing with the history of Ireland, and not all about distant times. A play about Jim Larkin and the Workers' Union was written by James Plunkett. And here again, no one was forced to see an actor impersonating Jim Larkin. They heard a voice, but all listeners imagined him as they would wish to see him. This play was a great success. It was a play full of patriotism, but not simply to a country, more to a class struggle, an ideal of social justice. Look at the police! Look at them! Well dressed and well fed! Who feeds them? You do! Who clothes them? You do! And they batten you for it! But why? Because they're organized and disciplined, and you're not! Organize now and stand together, brother with brother! The great are not great. The great only appear great because we are on our knees. Rise up! That's an extract from Big Jim by James Plunkett, which afterwards was adapted for the theatre and called The Risen People. And, of course, James Plunkett's novel, Strumpet City, was also based on that vivid world of Jim Larkin's Dublin. All the movements in world theatre were reflected in radio drama. A new style of radio acting began to grow. Established stage actors weren't always the best for radio. The radio air and players began to achieve recognition everywhere. What was that essential thing about radio acting? Sincerity. The microphone detects anything phony. Radio acting was acting almost as if the actor were speaking personally into the ear of the listener. He or she must never overdo anything, must never try to impose himself on his audience. There's no makeup, no help, no tricks. The actor exposes himself completely. And if he doesn't fully believe in what he's saying, then the listener certainly won't believe in it. International acclaim came in 1961 when Michal O'Hay's adaptation of Seamus O'Kelly's The Weaver's Grave uh, with the Ready Wearing Players won the Prix Italia. This was the first international recognition for Irish radio drama. The weaver was a dream. <laughs> Maybe Mrs. Heather wouldn't give in to that. Whether she gives in to it or whether she doesn't give in to it, it's a dream, Master my hair was. And his loom and his shuttles and his warp and bars and his bobbins and the threads he put upon the ships and wrecks were all a dream. And the only thing he ever wove upon his loom was a dream. And what's more, Every woman that ever come into his head and every wife he married was a dream. I'm telling you that, Nan, and I'm telling it to you of the weaver. His wife was a dream and his death is a dream. And his widow there is a dream and all the world is a dream. Do you hear me, Nan? This world is all a dream. I hear you very well, Father. And I'm a dream. That was from The Weaver's Grave, a play at once funny and profound, a play about life and death, 
about dream and the reality. But all radio drama wasn't only for serious works. Many plays were about everyday happenings and events. Do you remember this family? It's not that time, is it? I was sure I set the clock right by the wireless last night. It couldn't have gone so slow in the meantime unless there's something wrong with it. Well, sit down there at the table. I'll get you your breakfast now in a minute. Oh, you can stop your fuss, Alice. The clock is perfectly right. You mean it's really only 25 to 8? Not even quite that. Then what are you doing in the kitchen? I just thought I'd get up a bit early. Oh, you might have warned me just after nearly having heart failure. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not hurrying your mind, but I would like to leave about ten past eight. But sure, you must doesn't go to ten to nine. I know, but I'm going to get the one that goes at a quarter past. I want to walk some of the way into town. Now what for? Exercise. Exercise? Yes, I need some. Well, the notion's taken you very suddenly, hasn't oh, it? Oh, no, no, it hasn't. I've been putting on a bit too much weight lately. Bad for the old ticker, you know. So I'm going to limber up a bit. I see. And how long is this fad going to last? There were also the daily serials about Mrs Kennedy and the Kennedys of Castle Ross. This kind of radio drama filled the need people had for gossip and the small dramas of everyday events. Small communities were breaking up, village life was missed, and that's why these serials appeal to people and still do. It was really in the late 50s and early 60s that radio drama blossomed. Samuel Beckett wrote a number of works especially for radio. One of them, Embers, won an award at the Prix Italia. And in 1965, Radio Erin again won the Prix Italia with this play. Whose piano was it? Where did it come from? Uh, I've got one or two theories of my own, but I'd like to hear yours first. Well, I suppose it's from one of the auction rooms. It was up for sale. No one bought the old thing, so plunk. Splash and into the river with it. They say pianos cost more to move than to buy. You can get one for a song, but transportation is the problem. Now, take that piano in. Well, now, I don't need to mention the name of the pub on the far key. I never saw a piano there. No, but there is one. Oh. Isn't the whole roof resting on a piano in the empty room above the upstairs lounge? If they move that piano, the whole second place will collapse. That's why you never seen it. But mark my words. One day I know that when Tommy Owens, Joe Comfort and Mick Borden are drinking there with their intellectual friends, crash, bang, and the piano will drop right through the ceiling and the roof on top of it. And that'll be the end of... Well, you know where. Do you know that... The devil was seen in that pub when it was under a different name. Yeah, well, perhaps, perhaps, but that doesn't answer my question. Whose piano was this? Where did it come from? Now, there's been lots of great musicians in Dublin, you know. Not far from here wasn't there the first performance in the whole world of... Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. George Frederick Handel's Messiah was first performed in Dublin. And this piano could have been his. Imagine that. Handel's own piano in Dublin's River Liffey. Well, it makes you think, doesn't it, huh? Ah, but uh, I don't think it was his. Didn't he play the organ? In fact, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it was just after Handel that the piano was invented. Uh, no, no, not invented. That's the wrong word. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, uh, d discovered. 
No. Developed. And so that rules us out being Handel's Piara. But it could have been the man who invented the Nocturne. Another Dubliner like myself, John Field. Yes, it could have been his piano. Look closer now. It just might be. Lovely, sweet music he wrote, I believe. I never heard it. Only read about him. He went off to Moscow. He died there. Imagine that. An Irish man proclaimed in Moscow and never heard of in his own city. Do you remember the evenings we used to have at Chrissy Jones's? Oh, she could make the piano talk, Alma. I don't suppose it's her piano. Remember those songs she used to play? Are you lonesome tonight? Do you miss me tonight? And you sorry we drifted apart? Hey, why you with us out in that time and It wasn't your sister. It wasn't your ma. Ma, he's making eyes at me. Ma, he's awfully nice to me. Ma, he's That was from Dan Preston's Piano on the River. Radio drama had reached a point where a sound alone could become a character. In that play, a single note heard from a drowned piano unlocked many private worlds, as any sound can. This was a play that couldn't have been done anywhere but on radio. Even the river itself can't die. It goes up into the clouds and returns... Everything returns. Even that single note will grow when it finds a place to rest. It might take years and years, and we'll be dead and gone. But someone will hear it. Someone will hear it blossom into a melody, and that will be its meaning, even if it is not understood. That's exactly what radio drama has done. Produced that ripple in the pond of the mind and unlocked many hidden images. Radio drama is, of course, now, like colour adding a new dimension to TV, in stereo. As television uses colour, so radio drama now will use stereophonic sound and go on to explore further dimensions in sound. A long way from those first plays. Still, without these early efforts we'd not have grown at all. Someone had to sow the seeds. (laughs) 